0: the World Health Organization. They have been in China. They've been doing their own investigation uh, after a long time of kind of wrangling back and forth to be able to get access. But they have found now that they've been doing this, that the coronavirus most likely jumped to humans through an animal or frozen wildlife products. And a theory that it resulted from a laboratory leak is, quote, extremely unlikely, end quote, which is we know some people have you know, speculated on.
1: Yeah, they have. And and look, I think that will not necessarily put some of the uh, people who, who think that it did come from that uh, mm-hmm. to rest, but it is helpful to hear that from the World Health Organization. We're also seeing some other numbers, including uh, 5%, Governor Andrew Cuomo saying that the White House is boosting vaccine allocation another 5% for the next three weeks. The additional 5% was announced on a White House call with governors on Tuesday, and it follows an initial 20% increase and then a subsequent 5%.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, and it's interesting, though, um, let's just see, it says the supply will only really increase when and if J&J is approved, uh, right. the governor saying J&J would be a major and significant increase in production, there will be more information of that over the next few weeks, listen, uh, you know, over the next two weeks, excuse me. But we know, uh, Tim, you and I have talked about it, and we've talked about it with medical professionals that it's going to take many and multiple vaccines to kind of get this all under control. And we know each vaccine, you know, comes with its own, you know, caveats, two doses, one doses, extreme refrigeration, not so much the case. And there's still somewhat of a debate about, you know, should we just skip, you know, saving those second doses and get it out to more people? The Biden administration telling governors they are adamantly opposed to using second doses as first doses. I know from people who've gotten first dose, they're like, I want my second dose. That's when I will feel secure and confident and comfortable.
1: Uh, Listen, let's do what the CDC says. We got a good uh, good stat here in New York today, too. Uh, The city has surpassed a million doses. Remember, uh, Mayor Bill de Blasio had hoped to reach that by the end of January. Uh, It took a few extra days. Here we are on February 9th. And now we have surpassed that.
0: Yeah, exactly. And just keep in mind, global cases exceeding 106.5 million, deaths passing 2.32 million. And our global vaccine tracker, more than 134 million shots have been given worldwide. But as we know, in a world of many billions of people. Uh, One of the other things that we're watching when it comes to COVID is Tonics Pharmaceuticals surging yesterday up 22%, rallying again today up 15% before backing off a little bit, well actually a lot, but they're still up about 5-6% today, Uh, up nearly uh, 142% now this year after a 42% drop last year. Just kind of setting the scene because it's a company story, it's a fundamental story, but it's also a stock story. Um, And let's talk about why we're seeing the big moves because apparently the company has come out and said it is developing a COVID-19 skin test and that has got investors interested. Dr. Seth Letterman is a guest and friend of the show, co-founder, CEO, and chairman of the New York-based specialty pharmaceutical and clinical stage biopharma company, Tonics Pharmaceuticals. He's with us today on the phone in New Bedford, Massachusetts. Dr. Letterman, good to have you back here on Bloomberg. Uh, investors very enthused about this development. Tell us about this COVID-19 skin test.
2: Well, we're developing a vaccine, primarily, that stimulates T-cell immunity. It's based on a live viral vector that's called Horsebox, and it's a one-shot vaccine that we believe, from historical parallels, could provide decades of protection. We have monkey data supporting the vaccine. So we were very happy when we announced yesterday that we're de- developing a skin test that will measure T-cell immunity to COVID. And we think that this is important because there are two arms of the immune system, antibodies and T-cells. Antibodies are transient. They can be measured for maybe three or six months. But T-cells last for years or decades. So we think it will be very important to figure out how many people have T-cell immunity instead of just the antibody test.
1: How how long do you think that will sticker i mean how long do you think we will have to know this i mean i'm I'm thinking about this in the context of right us being on the other side of this pandemic at some point but how many more years do you envision us actually needing to get tested for immunity
2: well unfortunately i think that covid is here to stay i i think it's the majority opinion of people that, of experts, that COVID will become endemic after okay, the pandemic. Okay, so,
1: well, I, I just want to make sure I understand this. Here to stay, we've only eradicated one, one thing, and that is smallpox in, in, around the world.
2: Smallpox, we were very fortunate, was eradicated because it was extremely deadly. 30% of infected people died. But part of the success of smallpox eradication was the vaccine that was used. And the other part of the success with smallpox vaccination was that there were no animal reservoirs. And by animal reservoirs, I mean that no other non-human animals got infected with it. With COVID, we already know that's not the case. Minks, hamsters, uh, tigers, a variety of different animals get. So it's very, unfortunately, unlikely that this might be eradicated. So I think that the solution long term will be childhood immunization. In the same way that we immunize for MMR, measles, mumps, and rubella, Uh, We probably will go to a system of immunizing children. And that's why we think a vaccine like ours, a live replicating vaccine, which can provide years and decades of protection, is the best solution for that post-pandemic COVID problem.
1: So you answered my, my question, which is you envision this being a vaccine that a child gets at a very young age and then they don't have to worry about this for decades
2: that that's the hope, um but it wouldn't be infants because a live viral vaccine is is for um you know in in the case of smallpox, it was administered to children at about five years old or mm-hmm. so uh but not not for infants, but yes, I think that that would be the plan, but clearly, first we have to get out of the pandemic and for this. I think we're all extremely grateful to the people who've quickly developed these vaccines, the mRNA vaccines, and maybe now these adenovirus vaccines. Uh, They definitely have an incredibly important role, and I can't wait to get mine. So, you know, first we have to put out this fire, and then we can go to more uh, durable solutions.
0: So, and forgive me, I just want to go back to, because I know, in just reading in uh, before you were coming on, and I know you are working on the vaccine, but what about this skin test? Because it does seem like investors are very enthusiastic. Are they wrong to be so enthusiastic about that and not focus on the vaccine instead?
2: The skin test is important. I was mentioning the vaccine because it tells a little bit of the story about how we got to the skin test. But the skin test is very important because we really don't know how many people have immunity and we can't measure it. So there are many cases, for example, where there's a husband and a wife, and one of the spouses gets infected, the other cares for them, but, for example, the caregiver frequently doesn't get sick, doesn't develop antibodies, etc. We believe that a number of these cases actually T-cell immunity develops without antibodies. There, It's now known by much more complicated laboratory techniques that T-cell immunity is protective of developing serious disease. So, we just think this skin test is important and we think the excitement is justified because we would really get a better handle on how much T cell immunity is in the population. And also, it will be important information for people as individuals to go back to work to feel more safe, knowing that even though they don't have antibodies, they, they may have T cell immunity.
0: I mean, it certainly sounds like when all is said and done and we've gotten through this, we had no playbook, but we're going to certainly have a toolkit with various tools in the form of tests, vaccines, and Treatments, um, so that we can be ready for the next virus, and, and that seems like where we're going through. In terms of the skin test, in terms of your vaccine specifically, you know, when does it actually, when does it actually get out there and can be used?
2: Well, we're going to be in human trials with both of them. We believe this year, but I think in terms of, you know, getting out beyond trials, hopefully 2022, and but we'll have to see what the regulatory environment is like, how well the current vaccines are keeping the situation under control. Because if we go to a more traditional vaccine development, you know, that could be three years or so, not for the skin test, but for the vaccine.
0: But does but but does, you, that become, really rem- does that become, does that become moot? Forgive me for interrupting, because I'm just trying to understand. Does that become moot, though, at this point? Because if we've got vaccines that are already out there that we're using that are working?
2: No, it doesn't become moot because I think maybe one way to think about it is we need pandemic vaccines that are very fast to develop but may not have all the characteristics that we want. And then it will take time to refine them and make them better because we have to be dealing with this problem for, you know, centuries, hopefully millennia. Um, you know, this problem isn't going away. We have to develop tools so that people can be protected for a long period of time and also another characteristic of vaccines is to stop people from spreading it so there's a lot to be learned and you know there's it's it's wonderful that we have some quick fixes but we need durable solutions too
1: and your main concern just so i I make sure i get this right your main concern with the vaccines that are available right now is longevity how long protection they they give to the person getting the vaccine is that correct
2: concerns, but durability of protection is important. Another one is do they block transmission? That's not known yet. Um, and, and there you know, are other uh, concerns, what type of immunity they confer. So, these are brand new technologies. No mRNA vaccine has ever been approved uh, ever before. And even these just have emergency use authorization. So, we're using a much more standard technique that has a lot of known characteristics. But again, I applaud the speed with which these vaccines have been developed, and I encourage everyone to get them in, in, you know, when their number comes up. So I'm uh, I'm very pro vaccination, but I also think that we can't rest. We can't think that this problem is solved by any means, and I think that we all have to work very hard to develop better vaccines. So that because obviously we have to protect people who aren't even born yet
0: yeah we're talking with dr seth letterman co-founder chief executive officer and chairman of tonics pharmaceuticals with us on this tuesday from new bedford massachusetts so when you think about your own vaccine um dr letterman is it more about the viruses to come which business week the cover story right now is get ready for the next pandemic folks because it's coming so are you thinking when in terms of the development of your vaccine that it's more about not necessarily this covid vaccine but the next one
2: Oh, we're very focused on this, this COVID. Um, but as, as I'm sure you know, this COVID is a moving target. Correct. I mean, already last summer, there were a number of uh, mutations that were being noticed around the world. And now I think we should all still be bracing for the British strain, which has now arrived in the United States. The South African strain has arrived in the United States. And in addition to just these new variants, the, the variants are now believed by some to recombine. So we have a lot of misery to go through before we are out of this. So um, our vaccine, we we believe, can be important for this COVID, uh, can be adaptable to variants, and um, we we cannot get complacent just because we have these first few vaccines.
1: Dr. Letterman, what do you mean by these uh, strains, these new variants can recombine? What, What does that mean?
2: well that means that you know the the so called british variant is defined by a number of mutations and the south african mutation is defined by a number of mutations but there are already viruses that look like they have some from some and some from another some from one and some from the other so all of these mutations aren't arising spontaneously many believe so it just means that this this covid-2 virus is diabolical and is a moving target. Mm. So I think everyone has to really um, focus on this for some time to come. And even I'm sure you know that even with vaccination, we still recommend mask wearing, social distancing, hand washing, all the rest of it. So we are far from out of it.
0: Hey, listen, I have to ask you, just got about a minute left here before you go. I know last month, your stock kind of was the target of day traders, uh, touting the company on message boards for, at that time, no apparent reason. We we reported out here at Bloomberg, um, obviously different from the trade that we're seeing today. How do you feel about that and your stock getting caught up in some of that? And how do you, as a CEO, kind of monitor it and take care of it or just at least keep an eye on it?
2: Well, we, we raised money yesterday from four healthcare specific institutional funds. So I think our primary investors are, are funds. Um, but, uh, there was a day in January Mm -hmm. when your, your organization wrote a story about it. We, I actually went on Reddit for the first time last weekend and tried to figure it out. And I apologize, I didn't get very far. (laughs) So I think it's an exciting development. Um, uh, So far, to my knowledge, we haven't really been caught up in it, but um, I do think that one of the most exciting things about it is the transition of people to being interested in individual names, because I think we've come from a period, maybe 10 years, where... uh, Particularly younger people have just bought ETFs and um, indexes and things like that. Yeah. So maybe it's that people are at home. Maybe that you know the the no fee trading. But whatever, I think it's very exciting that people are getting back into the individual names instead of the indexes. Yeah. But as far as I know, we're mostly an institutional stock. For example, yesterday's entire seventy million dollar financing was for institutions.
0: All right. Good to know. Just wanted to get you to weigh in. Dr. Seth Letterman, co-founder, CEO, and chairman of Tonics Pharmaceuticals.
3: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Messer and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio.
1: Carol, we talk a lot about the toll that the pandemic has taken in terms of numbers, mm-hmm. cases, people who've died as a result of the pandemic. But one thing that's getting more and more focused right now is the way that we have put off going and visiting the doctor we've put off getting healthcare and different communities that have been affected more than others as a result of that. Emma Court joins us now. She's healthcare reporter at Bloomberg News. And she's writing about she's talking about her recent article, Miss Doctor Visits Have Created COVID's Shadow Health Crisis. Emma, it's great to have you on Bloomberg Business Week Radio. This story is really important. Take us through some of the numbers as to, to what we're learning in 2021 about how people might not have visited the doctor like they used to during the pandemic.
4: Right. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited to be here. Um, some sobering news, however, about the sort of neglect of non-COVID uh, conditions during this past year. Um, you know, I think a lot of us can relate for sure. Having pushed off, um, you know, maybe a primary care doctor visit, a, a routine dermatologist visit. Um, but you know the the big kind of takeaway here is in those early months of the pandemic in particular, there was just so such profound disruption to the medical system and it was people being told to stay home, people being afraid to go to the hospital um even in cases where they really needed emergency care um and even kind of in the months since then, it's been a little harder to get in to see a doctor there. Um, thinning out their waiting rooms because they don't want uh, a lot of people crowded in there, uh, things like that. Um, and so, you know, the, the most dramatic change I think you see in those early weeks was about um, at least $2.7 billion of routine healthcare spending just sort of disintegrated during that really disruptive early period. And we've seen those numbers come back. But I think the big takeaway is that even with the rise of uh, virtual doctor visits, we haven't seen... Um, uh, the, that deficit sort of being made up. Hmm.
0: Well, and so listen, we've talked about this a bunch on air with a lot of um, uh, members of the medical community. And Emma, you know, the thing is, you tell, I, I want to drill down a little bit because you talk about one individual specifically. Tell us about Sarah Strimmel.
4: Yeah, so Sarah's story uh, was very troubling. So she, um, She's 39. She owns a New York yoga studio. She realized over the summer that she had a lump in her breast and, you know, immediately had a visit with her physician as quickly as she could to consult with her doctor about it. She was referred for a scan um, but was told, you know, the soonest appointment you can have is three months away. And uh, she ended up actually finding a private firm that could do it much Sooner, she paid out of pocket for it um, and was diagnosed with stage 2 breast cancer, um, you know, days later. So uh, her physician actually told her that taking such quick action had probably saved her life because she, her cancer could have progressed a lot further in those, um, in those months if she had just waited to get the scan. And I think that kind of illustrates how, you know, one of the most dramatic scenarios in which um, not having easy, ready access to a physician um, can really affect people's health. Now, we, we hope that all these um, missed preventative care or routine care or even scans like uh, Sarah, with Sarah, that all these kind of disruptions to the system don't have such dramatic effects for people's health. But it's likely that it, it will, especially in situations where it's a chronic, you know, you have chronic conditions like diabetes or hypertension, and you really do need to have ready, continuous Monitoring of those um, of those conditions; otherwise, you can have you know, complications, and, and it can worsen your quality of life. It can even, you know, kill people.
0: Right. Right. And listen, right. There's implications for someone's individual personal health. But there's also, you know, if we think about it down the road, maybe also how it will add to overall health care costs in this nation. Listen, this, I think everybody can relate to this story where things were put off during the pandemic, partly because she didn't want to go near health facilities and partly because health facilities says, don't come near me. And so now we're all playing catch up, right? Tim, I kidded with you about even going to the dentist for a while. I
1: know, but you know what? It worked. I went to the dentist and it was all good.
0: (laughs) I'm kind of tough. Uh, Emma, this is a really smart story. Um, thank you for bringing it to us. Uh, we really appreciate it. Emma Court, she's healthcare reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone in New York City. And uh, I know as soon as things were open, I was like, all right, let's go back, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, it absolutely makes sense. I mean, think about the way that people change their behavior yeah. early on in the pandemic and continue to as well.
0: Really important.
3: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic. From Bloomberg Radio.
0: Do you want to get to among our most read stories on the Bloomberg? Love, love, love this story. Uh, the headline for it uh, really says so much, Tim. It's about the mastermind behind one of the world's richest companies, a $2.3 trillion fortress. Reporting for Bloomberg Business Week with another deep dive, amazing one, is Bloomberg News technology reporter Austin Carr joining us on the phone in Los Angeles. And Austin, I love this star- story. And I think about. You know, when we think about the genius behind this company, we understandably and rightfully think typically of Tim Cook's predecessor at Apple. We think about Steve Jobs. And yet Tim Cook has really taken Apple to a whole other level.
5: Totally. Um, what this story really dives into is a different exploration of Apple. Uh, traditionally, every look at Apple is about its product, about The the mythology of Steve Jobs about its design DNA. And what we really wanted to show was, in fact, equally important to that uh, trajectory of this company is the operational, the supply chain DNA that, that Tim Cook had baked into the, into the company, uh, as well as sort of the, the, the political and diplomacy skills he brings as a leader uh, of the company, which is definitely, uh, you know, we have someone in there just describing his personality as, a, you know, a tad boring, perhaps, compared to Steve Jobs. But, but that's what Apple needed in the last years, uh, last 10 years, especially during the, the Trump era.
0: Dole Weber, you're also with us, joining us, and uh, this is like one of those stories I just love that you you learn something else about a company that we cover so much, but yet here you go, you find out something new.
6: Yeah, so I have just been um, amazed by how good this story was because you know I think there's a moment here that we found ourselves in where we're we're 10 years after Steve Jobs, yeah. and you know this 10 year moment that Tim Cook has basically. Um, led this company through is basically unrivaled in the history of capitalism. Um, We've seen this thing, this company go from a a really important player to, to something whose market cap is $2.3 2.3 trillion dollars. We one of the sources in the story says within another 12 months we're going to see it at three trillion. So the revenue really does look endless. And you know I think the one of the more um, significant parts here, and I think Austin did a good job um, um, showing this, is it, you know even with all that the revenue and and all the innovation that they've had, you know the other thing that they've really been able to do is double down. On, on themselves, and I think what we're seeing now is this—you um, know—this privacy battle that mm-hmm. they, found, they found themselves locked in with Facebook. Uh, you know, Tim Cook is very effective at uh, wielding the public's uh, focus, and effectively has has really turned this into a conversation about privacy, which really benefits Apple and is a challenging one for Facebook. And. And Austin, what, what are the stakes when you think about what that means, um, not only for, for the, the two sides and how they've been kind of waging war publicly, but, but where it might unfold going forward?
5: Yeah, the, the, the really brilliant thing we've seen is sort of Apple apply its marketing uh, strength to the political realm. Um, you know, at, there's this public messaging battle, not just between Apple and Facebook, Tim Cook and Mark Zuckerberg, but essentially Apple and every software maker out there from Spotify to Epic Games. And one of the clever things that they've really done when it comes to antitrust scrutiny um when you know we're, we're sort of in the early stages of whether we'll see Bi- the biden administration support congressional uh increase into that um but cook has really repositioned the company as this privacy forward um you know advocate for for uh, silicon valley and really uh you know rather than being on the defensive has really attacked facebook and other social media companies and just wanted to to push all that antitrust scrutiny on them and it's a really difficult messaging war because on the one hand they're saying we want to protect privacy and that's why you should focus on section 230 and all these other issues Uh, And if you're Mark Zuckerberg or anyone at Facebook, it's so hard to make the argument against that because you just sound like you're against privacy. So it's a really clever uh, diplomacy tact. And and that's one of the things that we saw now in the Biden administration, which we learned tons of lessons about uh, during the Trump administration. Well, how we handled that administration and considering how disruptive it could have been to uh, to to Apple with their supply, their reliance on on China.
1: Yeah, uh, Austin, what about when it comes to actually manufacturing in the U.S.? There's this, this great anecdote about President Trump, former President Trump, and Tim Cook together in Texas. Take us take us back there, what happened and, and why what President Trump said at the time was not at all accurate about Apple's manufacturing in the U.S.
5: So, yeah, there was- big uh, event in November 2019, about a year before the presidential election. And Tim Cook joins President Trump, uh, who, you know, on the surface have very differing personal politics. Uh, but at the same time, what, uh, you know, sources tell us is that uh, Tim was extremely good at trading optics. You know, uh, you know, Trump is the guy who wanted to uh, have his sort of Business credentials validated, and what better than attaching himself to one of the more beloved American brands when it comes to innovation or job creation? Uh, and, and they come to this, this tour at Texas and sort of present it as this. Uh, you know, the future of U.S. manufacturing, a sign that this reshoring effort that that Trump has has taken on with the trade war is working. Uh, But internally, over the years, sources just said that factory was quite a disappointment. Um, It was sort of an early experiment to see whether the U.S. supply chain could compete with China's. And one source just said it failed miserably. Uh, So the irony was that even with those struggles at the plant, Tim Cook was still able to to repurpose that, to use the Apple brand and reposition that factory uh, to sort of, uh, you know, help solidify his relationship with Trump, which, who knows, could have, uh, you know, led to more tariff relief, uh, less disruption to their their supply chain, and and generally speaking, just less, you know, ire uh, from Trump, you know, from tweets. Like you've seen him criticize other CEOs, particularly Jeff Bezos. Tim Cook never received that, and it's like it's because of his diplomacy efforts that he did in Texas as well as in Washington over the past four years.
0: Yeah, I think what's interesting too is you write about just this kind of unlikely, but it really kind of makes sense, this combination between Tim Cook of Apple and President Donald Trump. And a lot of it had to do, as you write, uh, about this kind of the president really craving a mainstream business validation. It is an amazing story, like Joel Joel mentioned, really just a lot of information and just gives you some more insight into the man who's you know leading one of the biggest companies out there. Uh, Joel Weber, thank you so much. Editor of Bloomberg Business Week, Austin Carr, tech reporter at Bloomberg news on the phone in LA.
3: You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Messer and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio.
0: All right, everyone. Uh, Just about 60 minutes left in today's trading session. And one of the top stories today is how House Democrats are proposing to limit the next round of COVID-19 relief payments. And they're talking about households or making the limitations to households earning less than $200,000. We know that there's been a fair amount of pushback uh, on both sides of the aisle when it comes to President uh, Biden's $1.9 trillion stimulus package. So let's get into it, Tim. Let's bring in Bloomberg News. Congratulations tax reporter Laura Davison. She's on the phone in DC. So Laura, tell us about the latest and what you're hearing and maybe what's likely to happen in order to get this COVID-19 relief package through. Yeah. So last
7: night, um, House Democrats put out a series of different proposals. And one of the things that we were really watching for was, you know, where exactly are these uh, these stimulus payments going to go? And um, this has been a point uh, of contention between uh, Republicans and Democrats and even without, among Democrats for, for several days where they landed on this proposal is that if you um, are a single person, Earning um, seventy-five thousand dollars a year, you get that full fourteen hundred dollars payment. Same, a couple, married couple making uh, uh, up to under 000, one hundred and fifty thousand dollars will get a fourteen hundred dollars each. Those payments will then phase out for singles earning up to one hundred thousand dollars or couples earning up to two hundred thousand dollars. And and this was sort of a compromise between uh, what some uh, Senate Democrats had wanted. Uh, they kept those caps, but they basically phased the payments out uh, more quickly than they did in in previous in previous bills. Um, So what's next? Uh, They they will go and do what's called a markup. This is basically going through the legislation line by line um, in the House uh, all this week. Uh, It was basically they'll wrap everything up by the end of this week, looking to vote on the legislation potentially as soon as next week. And then Pelosi has said she'll send it over to the Senate. Um, As soon as they're done in the House, they're looking to pass this, you know, fully through Congress by mid-March.
1: Okay. So how does this compare, Laura, to what Republicans wanted to see?
7: So basically Republicans wanted to have a lower cap. So instead of $50,000, they wanted $40,000 instead of, you know, a hundred thousand or sorry, instead of uh a, Sorry, I misquoted those numbers. Instead of $75,000, they wanted them capped at $50,000, and instead of having um, couples uh, earning up to $200,000, Democrats proposed they wanted to to phase those out around $80,000. So the the, the limits were, uh, were were pretty stark, and also de- Republicans were proposing only $1,000 per person versus that $1,400 that Democrats have been talking about.
1: So does this indeed make it a, a more make these payments more targeted? does it does it indeed help prevent this from benefiting the wealthy or are there still some issues to work out
7: they have really cut off uh you know sort of the the issues that we saw with some previous rounds or kind of issues that were discussed if they hadn't put these caps on you know these payments going to you know three hundred thousand dollars you know a year households that won't happen under here basically the difference uh the, the, though kind of on the lower end side of the income spectrum, it's very similar to what we've seen. The big difference when you look at the numbers comparing, you know, like the, the payments from the CARES Act versus this proposal is that households with children will just get a lot more money. So under the CARES Act, it was only $500 per kid. This would have it at, um, you know, $1,400 per kid. So, you know, a family of four under that um, under that $150,000 income threshold will get $5,600. So it's a, it's a pretty large check, uh, particularly for households that have, you know, two, three, or four children.
0: So what they're trying to do, I, it sounds like Laura, is like try and really hopefully make sure money is going to people who might be most likely struggling and we know folks with kids um you know i was looking at a story that you also put out uh, with katarina sarajeva about u.s child poverty crisis Uh, i mean more than eight million americans including many children falling into poverty during the second half of last year i mean You know, it's hard to look away from that. And it's hard not to think about, all right, how do we best make sure that kids are being taken care of, that there's food on their table, and that the parents that are overseeing them can do that?
7: Yeah, so this is another key portion of, of the Democrats' proposal is to do this child tax credit. Um, and this would essentially work as sort of a, a separate round of, of stimulus payments versus kind of the child tax credit, how we thought about it for years. You know, it's just something that you know, either gets added on to your tax refund or used to offset tax liability. What this proposal would do would send out a payment. Uh, a monthly payment, uh, spreading out the, the total value of of the credit throughout the year. So for, you know, a, a single child would be, you know, between, depending on the age of the child, between 250 to $300 a month. So this is something they propose to do for the rest of this year. But Democrats are already thinking about how could we make this a permanent proposal so that households have a little bit of extra infusion uh, to pay for, for expenses throughout the year.
0: Can I just mention a chart? More than 16% of children in the U.S. were in poverty in December. That well, just That's just rough.
1: That's rough. Up. The timeline for these checks, you know, we we talk a lot about the $1.9 trillion stimulus package, unclear the timeline there, but, but how quickly could people get relief?
7: So the IRS has said that they um, are are prepared uh, and ready to go if the if Congress passes another round um, in December when they pass the stimulus bill, they got those checks really out within a matter of of days. Um, they started sending them, and you know, kind of over the course of three or four weeks, they got the vast majority of those payments out. Same thing here; we could see that you know if they are able to pass this bill mid-March sort of by you know mid to late March people could start seeing the direct deposits for the child tax credit that will take longer Congress is going to give the IRS until July to start sending those out
0: yeah it, it's interesting um, are you anticipate alright so I mean something's gonna happen right and it's obviously gonna be a little bit different from what President Biden put out there but it's moving along bottom line is
7: it certainly is. You know, the question really is when they move it over to the Senate, that's when all the, uh, the funky rules about the special budget process that they're using. And that's when we could see parts getting stripped out of this bill as they uh, run afoul of this uh, budget reconciliation process.
0: Hey, Laura, one last quick question. Is impeachment going to get in the way of any of this, do you think? Um, impeachment looks like it will wrap, you know by um, early next week. Okay. If they are able to kind of stick to the time and
7: lay out, it should be done soon.
0: All right. good to know. Um, Laura, thank you so much. really appreciate it. Laura Davison, Congressional tax reporter at Bloomberg News, on the phone from Washington, d c. Tim, you know I'm looking at her story and, you know, what you could get versus what you could get under the CARES Act. I mean, it does sound like they're trying to figure out how to make sure that the money gets to the right hands. And it's hard to argue with that, some would say. Right,
1: right. The criticism, of course, is that it's not targeted enough, right? Correct. Stimulus payments are going to people who are working, people who don't necessarily need the money. And when that happens, we've learned... they might save it They might not spend it Right And it won't have that Stimulating effect That economists are looking for
0: Exactly Which is why it's so tricky And which is why we You know Kicked off the top of the show Talking to Mike about You know Some of these things We have to think about Longer term investments And longer term impact
2: I'm driving in my car I turn on the radio. Hey,
4: How about you let me drive?
2: Oh no 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 Who's gonna drive you home? Honey Please I'll do the driving Drive on. Excuse me I want to drive
0: Folks, just about 11 minutes left in today's trading day. We're hovering near our highs of the session, but little changed, as Charlie just mentioned. On the S&P, Dow just up about 11. NASDAQ, the outperformer, but just by a hair, up about 39 points or up 0.3%. Let's get to a top-performing fund manager, someone we've had on before. Eric Clark back with us, Portfolio Manager at Rational Dynamic Brands Fund. His Rational Dynamic Brands Fund, by the way, continuing to beat just about all of its peers this year and over the last five years. Over the past five years, check it out, up on average. Nearly 23% annually, putting his fund in the 95th percentile, according to our data here at Bloomberg. Eric's back with us on the phone from San Diego. So, Eric, nice to have you back with us. How are you?
3: I'm doing great. Happy New Year.
0: Yeah, although it feels a lot like 2020. (laughs) in many ways. Sadly, it does. (laughs) Well, so listen, you dig into different brands. A lot of them are names that we know. We've talked about it before, whether it's an Amazon, an Apple, a MasterCard, a Nike. Um, These are some of your top holdings. Has this year changed at all in terms of how you're thinking about your portfolio versus what we saw that might have been some very strong pandemic plays in 2020?
3: It really has. You know, we've, we're, we're probably as balanced by the winners of last year that we think still have a lot of room to run, with some of the laggards turned to leaders of particularly areas where we we think consumers are really pent up, and and travel at, is re, certainly right at the top of my list, getting out rather than staying in, and and we're we're still it's obviously still winter. We're we're in February, but it won't shock me soon if we get to hear from from Airbnb and Marriott and Hilton, some of those brands, and they talk about the reservations being, you know, kind of building as people get excited for spring and summer travel. And I don't think that's in the stocks yet. So we're building that big travel basket, if you will, of, of great brands.
1: Okay. So explain how you can be bullish both on, on Airbnb and on, on Hilton, right? Cause so many could argue that Airbnb is disrupting Hilton.
3: That's true. I, I you know, to be honest with you, I think there's going to be so much demand it's going to overflow i mean i certainly the airbnb and the vrbo and, and and we own expedia for the vrbo exposure um that's an area that's really become popular because of covid and i think it will continue but in many cases i mean airbnb is extremely expensive uh relative to the to the other companies we still love it but but the the demand is going to kind of outstrip supply between the 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 house sharing as well as the hotel. So I just think the whole group, as well as the platforms of Expedia and booking are just gonna gonna experience some epic demand across the
4: board. So
0: Eric, have you been doing any buying or pairing back of some of your positions? I'm just curious about any kind of logistical moves that you've been making in your portfolio.
4: Yeah,
3: I mean, we've we've certainly done some trimming of the higher uh, valuation winners of 2020. Uh, You know, we had a much bigger position in PayPal, still love it. Uh, square still love it, but we've, we've kind of pared back some of those high valuation names. I mean, everybody's kind of over their skis lathered up with, with tech, but mm-hmm. everybody is underweight, the consumer brands, particularly in consumer discretionary. So I love being in an area that isn't crowded when, when the valuations are much better and we see some, some great demand. And, and, you know, we're still with the VIX still stubbornly over 20. We're still using tactical trading, active trading, as a way to to kind of use some cash, get in, get paid, and then get back to the cash, and then wait for another opportunity. So between that and just uh, avoiding some of the higher valuation names that we think comparisons year over year are just going to be too too difficult. Uh, I love the balance that we have now between the the old winners and the and the kind of laggards to turn to turn leaders this year.
1: Okay, so you guys own Uber. Uh, you you say that you love the stock. Why we have Lyft earnings after the bell today? Why Uber and not Lyft? And and what do you think of that one point one billion dollar acquisition of Drizzly that was announced last week?
3: I I think it's great on the Drizzly acquisition. I mean, I think it just fills up their ability to kind of control the last mile. And and I I like Lyft and Uber. I just think Uber has a lot more optionality with all the other subsidiaries that they have and have. Uh, Exposure to through JVs around the world, but I, you know, I, I for the same reason that travel should do well, the things that are tied to travel, like an Uber, like a Lyft, should do well as a recovery theme. And and I like, you know, they have the Uber Eats. Um, that I, you know, let's face it, we got used to certain things. Some of that will continue on the Uber Eats side. With the Drizzly, you get a new uh, revenue stream, and then. You have the ride, the ride sharing as well that, that'll, that'll eventually come back and has already, I'm sure, seen lots of, uh, lots of recovery. So I, I just, not to mention from a technical perspective, that stock looks like it's just on the verge of breaking out. So that's kind of an early breakout sign for that, for that group when some of the other tech stocks have run and, in my opinion, are pretty extended to the upside. Yeah.
0: Well, having said that, are you, I hate to use this expression, keeping some powder dry, um, but are you holding back because there's been such a run-up and waiting for a better entry point? And I'm just curious if you have upped your cash positions at all so that when we do see a pullback, which many predict, that you can kind of get in there at some lower rates.
3: Well, we are. I mean, we, we we're we're tending to trim some things that are at the top end of the range and adding to some things that are kind of at the bottom end of the range. And it's not getting a lot of, of news, mm. but we've had a bit of a, a rolling correction over the last couple of months. It hasn't been a very even everything going up at the same time. So uh, I love the ability to sell something that's, that's up and to the right and to the top and then buy something that's already experienced a 5 or 10% pullback and, and, and just keep recycling that, that cash allocation into names that have much bigger upside to keep this thing rolling.
1: Hey, uh, Andy Jassy at Amazon. I know Amazon is one of your top holdings. What do you make of uh, Jeff Bezos stepping down later this year?
3: Well, I think it's I think it's uh, the normal succession that happens. I mean, he's still young, but he's been there a long time, and I'm sure he has other aspirations, philanthropic and space and all that stuff. But to have a guy who's been there for 25 years and understands the culture was part of building the culture. To me, that's a much better um a much better decision than bringing somebody from the outside because you know i have a lot of friends that work there and it's a unique culture let's just put it that way so Mm. if you're ingrained in the culture that's probably a a good extension and andy's been you know a part of all of the decisions so it's not like you have an outsider coming in without that with that 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 amazon view of the world
0: all right, listen, always love checking in with you, Eric. Thank you so much. Uh love all the specificity in terms of talking names. Eric uh, Clark, he's Portfolio Manager at the Rational Dynamic Brands Fund. Check it out. The performance, as I said, short-term, longer-term, five years, beating pretty much all of its peers, returning on average about 23% annually over the past five years.